Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Tunnel by John Metcalf. With an unspoken curse, Pietro Succi gave his head a downward, peck-like jerk, twisted his shoulder round, and bit his upper arm. The fit of coughing which he stifled in his sleeve convulsed his frame, passed, then returned more violently, and each time that he coughed, Pietro bit. At last the paroxysm left him. He raised his head, and with a cautious venom spat out the earth which filled his mouth, gritted between his teeth. His body was damp with sweat. He was weakened, panting from strenuous exertion, and from his smothered rage against the cough which nearly had betrayed him. The narrow tunnel at one end of which he crouched was perhaps twelve yards long, but Suchi reckoned it in years. Two yards a year. That made six years. That was the time it took a man to burrow downwards through the earthen flooring of his cell, to drive a level passage underneath the prison wall, to start at last with feverish hands and wildly beating heart upon the upward-trending slope that led towards freedom and the light of day. Humped, half a squat within the elbow of this gradual ascent, Suchi could catch the glimmer of the lamp that shone all night outside his cell. The light had to pass through the grating over his door, to filter downwards through the boards that screened the opening of his burrow, to struggle finally along the horizontal passage. Yet by this niggard radiance Suchi could see as plainly as most men in the daylight. He could see the knots in the boards which he had used to revet the sides of his tunnel, could even see the blood that dulled the glitter of the nail upon a lacerated finger. He had developed the eyes of a bat, or of a mole. With a curious illusion of remoteness, the shadowy vista of his burrow stretched in a dwindling ring towards the grudging trickle of the light, but closer, at a little further than his hand might reach, the upper portion of its circle was occluded by a straight, black edge. That was the bottom of the prison wall, he thought. He looked at it, and frowned. Even now, with liberty, fresh air, a bare two yards maybe above his head, the thing dismayed and baffled him. Hardly a board that stayed the tunnel sides of which he should not know the form and feel by heart. Hardly a scar upon the stubborn soil to which he might not give a proper story and a date. Yet of the grave miscalculation which had brought him up against the lower courses of the wall instead of several feet beneath it, he could remember nothing. It must have added at the least a fortnight to his tale of strenuous days, for it entailed an awkward dip and till he worked beyond it, a painful cramping of the limbs. Strange that he should have so forgotten. For some moments he regarded it perplexedly. Then, with a sudden passionate intake of the breath, he turned. Enough that it was past. Another hour, and he should be free. Feverishly, he recommenced his laboring. He was still panting from excitement and from the violence of his toil. The sweat— which had chilled upon his body made him shiver till his renewed exertion warmed him once again. He worked with both hands clasped about the handle of a chisel, prizing and clawing, 
using his fingers to tear out the loosened clods. The earth fell pattering round him in a chilly, softly crumbling shower, matting his hair, tickling inside his loosely fitting shirt, filling his eyes and nose, making him choke and grunt. Once in a frozen rage, he stopped again to clap his mouth against his sleeve, fearing a fresh attack of coughing. But presently the irritation passed, and he continued. A cough now, he fancied, so short a distance from the surface might well be heard above. The sound might carry upwards, and then, perhaps, detection and the wrecking of the work of years, a thing for him far worse than death, a thing to crack the heart. He strove in desperate haste, for he had burned his boats behind him. It was now or never. The work that he should do to Nightwood at an earlier stage have taken him six months. He had calculated matters to a nicety. Now, on the final lap, it was no longer necessary to carry back the earth laboriously to his cell, plaster it evenly upon the floor, and cover it with straw. He had merely to let it fall about him, packing it roughly downwards with his feet. Unless he had seriously underestimated his distance from the surface, there would always be an opening left to breathe by. The tunnel took increasingly an upward trend. Behind him lay the little pile of boards which he had brought to prop the sides. They were the last the governor had sent him, the remnants of a packing case. After the first two years, he had been allowed to occupy his time in fashioning as best he might from rude material such as this a host of worthless trifles, brackets and little cabinets, a table even, and an ornamental stool. Of what became of them he had no notion— nor was he curious to inquire. They were removed as soon as made, gravely, without comment, but with the suggestion of a stern pity by the sphinx-like warder who carried him the wood. Enough that they had served his turn, they and the chisel. As for the boards, he would hardly need them now. In half an hour or less the burrow should be vertical, and then, with a tightening at his chest— a curious prickling and tingling of his skin, he realized that at last the time had come. The moment he had longed for, the distant goal of years, the crowning of his days of planning, stolen nights of toil. Already he was actually outside the prison wall. Even his toes had passed that fatal boundary. The earth rained round him in a steady and increasing shower. It was much softer to work than he had thought. The going was strangely, unexpectedly easy. For a second he stood puzzled, vaguely disconcerted. Then, with a bracing of his muscles for the ultimate assault, he began again to battle upwards, and as his body strove and struggled, Pietro's mind, released, fled skimming backwards. In a kind of vivid dream, he saw himself as he had stood eight years ago, desolate for the first time within his cell, gazing with unseeing eyes upon the truckle-bed, the freshly littered straw, listening in a dry anguish of despair to the fading echoes of his jailer's tread. For an unreckoned time, his mind had frozen in a curious suspension of emotion. Within it, none the less the feverishly imaged details of his trial had revolved grotesquely. 
He came of humble but aspiring stock. At twenty-five, he had inherited from his father one of the small quicksilver mines by Vegia. He had married, bought a villa near the coast. The mine was managed by a Sardinian named Toriani, a bitter, yellow-visaged man, whom gossip credited with a passion for Pietro's wife. One morning, Toriani vanished, but a fortnight later his battered body was discovered at the bottom of a disused shaft. Pietro was arrested. His trial dragged throughout the flaming heat of a Sicilian summer towards a predestined end. A thousand nothings had declared his guilt, forgotten jests that turned bewilderingly to subtle threats, the raked-up story of some fatuous years-old altercation over cards, innumerable significant and sinister mischances. Pietro, calm throughout three torturing months, broke down at last before his lawyer. "'But,' he had cried, "'they don't understand!' You see, they don't understand. I'm innocent. I proclaim it innocent. The lawyer, shrugging wryly, had with a bitter smile replied, Ah, well, as it happens, you're a lucky one. I can tell you that you've escaped the life term. They're commuting it to forty years. That irony, however, was lost upon Pietro. Now, as his fingers tore away the overroofing earth in their exultant fury, he felt a dim amazement for these early days. What had his life been like? How had he lived at all without this hope, this secret and engrossing dream of liberty to nourish and sustain him? Quite plainly, he recalled the birth of his idea. Two years or more had passed since his conviction, and he was busy hoeing a bed of garlic in the governor's garden. Such jobs were granted in reward for good behaviour. Raising his eyes a moment from his work, he had looked up and seen the sunlight glitter on a pane. He had been long enough within the prison to realise that a little further to the rear beneath this pane was situated his own cell. In a flash it had come to him. He could be no more than twenty paces from the outer wall. Some day he would escape. Reflection, while it brought to light unreckoned difficulties— had strengthened his resolve. A number of circumstances favoured the attempt. For one thing, the wood and mallet, and the precious chisel. Besides that, the prison was old and antiquated. Upon the mainland it could never have existed. It had been extemporised half a century ago from the ruined stronghold of some fallen noble house, and served since then for the incarceration of ladrones and occasional banditti from the hills. His own cell had an earthen floor. It was in the night that he had worked. At first he had used a nail, and after that the taper of the chisel-blade which he had pulled from out its wooden socket. The blunting and the rusting of the other end would have aroused suspicion. A hundred pitfalls lay in wait for an unwary step. A hundred far-off chances of detection had had to be envisaged. The smallest things— disclosed a lurking menace. The veriest trifle might betray him instantly. Even the cleansing of the chisel-end, still more of his own person, required elaborate thought and preparation. Impossible to use his drinking water. He had had to lick, and afterwards to spit. With the deepening of his burrow, fresh obstacles arose. 
The opening had to be covered with boards, and then with straw. It became increasingly an arduous task to free his clothes and body of the soil that covered them. Finally, he feigned a liking for lying on the earth to cool himself. His warder, fortunately, was an unsuspicious giant from the plains of Lombardy. There came one day the rumour of an inspection of the prison. In each cell old straw was to be removed and fresh laid down. Pietro spent a night in the meticulous plastering and levelling of earth upon the boards that hid his tunnel. It was not, however, until week had lengthened into weary week that the inspection finally took place, and meanwhile all his work was at a standstill. The matter cost him full two months' delay. So through six years of striving, planning, had he toiled on, undaunted, towards his distant goal. Beneath the semblance of a bowed dejection, he had developed an amazing cunning. True, he had made the tunnel, but truer that the tunnel had made him. He had given it of his best, and as requital had acquired courage and enterprise, resource and swift provision, his wits were tempered danger sharp. Of dire necessity, he had achieved the very refinement of dissimulation. Amongst his keepers, he was held to be a man whose spirit had been broken by his troubles. He had overheard them once as they discussed him. Their words had made him chuckle. He, broken, he who had wrought a tunnel with the sweat of brain and body, the ungrudging agony of years. He was above them all, the clods, the fat-cheeked swine-fed dolts. He worked more gleefully that night for knowing how he had outwitted them. Thus, with the steady lengthening of the tunnel, a secret and increasing pride had burned within the soul of its creator. Pride, and another and intenser feeling of which the man himself was unaware. Slowly, unconsciously, the focus of his powers had shifted. The tunnel, from being a means to an end, had grown itself to be an overmastering passion, filling his days and nights, absorbing his whole being. Like a difficult and an ungrateful child, it called unceasingly upon his time, his labour, and his loving care. His life was dedicated to its service. He was become its creature and its slave. Once there had been excitement in the prison. A man was pardoned. He had been a convict longer than Pietro, fifteen years. Fresh evidence had come to light, and he was free. A miracle. There had been a glimpse of him as he passed unsteadily along a corridor in a grey shirt and trousers, his face vacant, staring. He did not look happy. Liberty had merely dazed, bewildered him. Pietro felt no envy. Not thus to him should freedom come at length. Not as a gift. Pietro should command it. And now, at last, the time had come the time towards which his every thought had strained, his every energy been bent. A few more moments, and he would have left the tunnel. It would be no longer his. In the midst of his feverish labours, a sudden chill passed down his spine, a shudder almost of dismay. His tunnel! Like the recurring motif of some splendid symphony, it had run through his life, informing, unifying, he had served it as an artist served his art, 
a priestess faith, a worshipper, a devotee. For years on end he had assessed each day by nothing but the handfuls of brown earth he carried backwards to his cell. Those strenuous, troglodytic hours had done their work on him. He was become the slave of one idea, a scheming, resolute brain directing hands that clawed and tore, a man no longer, only a creature that could tunnel. Yet now was not the time to waver, falter. The work which he had carried almost to completion awaited coronation. Success alone would set a seal upon endeavour. To fail was to be false to what his strength and skill had fashioned, to prove unworthy of the masterpiece he had created. Besides, the moment sped. He must be free three hours before sunrise at the least. The nights just now were never very cold. He knew the country well. With any luck he would have gained the forest-covered foothills before the dawn had broken, and then, by stealth and fleetness to the northern coast, running by night, hiding throughout the day. He wondered how his wife would welcome him. He pictured her surprise. Suddenly he paused. His heart gave a wild beat. A clod, untouched, came tumbling of itself upon his feet, he put a hand upon the place from which it fell. Just for a second, the crumbling earth seemed to strike faintly warm upon his fingertips. His brain swam. Save for his cramped position in the tunnel, he would have fallen. After a while, he felt again. The warmth was nothing, only his imagination. Yet no. Placing his fingers on the earth a little lower down, he thought he could detect a difference in the temperature— the lower soil was cooler by a shade. He struggled to collect himself, but as his hand had felt the earth, his heart had given a sick drop. He was curiously weak, exhausted, not by his savage toil so much as by some strange and clutching terror, a vague and haunting fear that sapped his strength and drained his energy. A sense of ominous impendence weighed him down. In vain, he tried to grapple with he knew not what. The thing evaded capture like a dream that mocked him. In the close silence of the tunnel's end he waited, listening, and as he waited something crept and stirred minutely in his brain. He could hear the hammering of his heart. It sounded like the beating of a drum. He could hear the drive and surge of blood against his ears, the tiny whispering of the damp and wounded earth about his head. And now, between these sounds, a voice, a memory. His haunting dream had slowly gathered shape. A threatening image rose before his eyes. He saw the bottom of the prison wall, its ruled and level edge, that wall that should not have been there. He saw himself as he had stood dismayed a moment gone, his hand upon the earth that had seemed warm. He saw at last a vacant, goggling face, the face of someone passing down a corridor, the tautly white and staring face of one whom liberty had terrified. He turned, and in a final frenzy tore wildly at the soil above his head. He struggled, but the presage of some imminent disaster sucked his strength. A foreboding, black as death, had gripped his soul, a baffling nightmare sense of unreality. He had dropped the chisel and was working with his hands alone. 
There were stones now, and suddenly the blood ran trickling warm about his fingers. A smother of earth fell blinding, choking in his eyes and mouth, but still he battled upwards. As from some frightful dream that holds its victim still upon the parting brink of sleep, he struggled to awake. Once and again his brain had tottered, bursting on that fatal verge. He realized that he was shouting, cursing, but his outcry did not cease. A blind, unreasoning fury had possessed him. Suddenly, the earth above him stirred. It fell upon his neck, his shoulders, in a murderous, crushing weight. He gasped for breath. As by degrees he fought his upward way, he felt a burning heat. His eyes were blinded by a torturing light. Something was roaring, booming in his ears, surely the sound of voices. And why? It was broad day. He sank exhausted, dazed upon the ground. He rubbed his eyes and, blinking, looked about him. Where was the prison? Where? Whose were those faces peering at him through a fence? For a while he sat, bewildered and dismayed. Then, as he heard a step behind and felt a touch upon his shoulder, his confusion ended. Of course, he could remember now. Remember perfectly. This was his joke. The little joke he played so well. These were the people who had come to watch him and applaud. The fire left his eyes. His frenzy was replaced by an abashed docility. Upon his grimed and bleeding face there broke the flicker of a wistful smile. A pair of unseen hands assisted him to rise. He shuffled slowly off, dropping upon that firm and friendly arm. He was weary, weary and very hungry. Presently he knew that they would give him supper. His smile attained a preternatural tenderness. For a short time after he had vanished, the little crowd that had collected to watch Pietro Succi's exit from his burrow stood chattering by the fence. It was rare fun to see that shouting, frenzied thing with whirling, flare-like arms come thrashing upwards from the ground. Good fun, and nobody the worse for peeping, although his people did make such a fuss. It was worth ten lira any day to watch. Besides, it only happened about once a month. After the rest had scattered, two peasant lads remained beside an opening in the fence. And now, you see— said one. That's how he always does it. <laughs> Just like a badger, isn't he? Or else an earth bear from the forest. They only start the tunnel for him, and he finishes. He thinks that he's escaping from the prison. <laughs> Seven times I've seen it. The greatest sight in Veggia, or anywhere in Sicily, they say. Why, once there was a man who came to see him do it from Palermo. But why? inquired the other. Why does he want to tunnel? And was he really in a prison once? Yes, he was eight years in the prison. They thought he murdered someone. He was just escaping by his tunnel when they pardoned him. It made him mad. And now he always has to burrow. For a while they hung fascinated, staring upon the place from which the madman had emerged. Then, with a final shuddering glance, they slowly turned away.
Hello ladies and gents, Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links. <laughs>